Welcome to the second edition of the series Sibling Stories, the very first podcast dedicated solely to the siblings of loved ones with mental illness. During each episode, I will shed light on the challenges and success that being the sibling of a loved one with mental illness can bring. I went from being this person that was completely loving power and thinking that this would be the thing that make me feel good and it would protect me. Instead of that, I led with the power of love. That freed me from my past rumination and I could spend more time in the present moment. And amazingly, I could lean into all the things that I was missing when I had my armor on, when I had my ego on. I could lean into love. And what that meant is that first, You've got to feel that unconditional love for yourself so that it wells up and it fills you up and it overflows so much so that that's why you want to share it with other people and shine your light. And that opens up the way that you can receive it back from others. Because right now, when we close ourselves off and we armor on, we certainly can't feel love from others. So what happens? I use love to power my meetings. I used it to power the way I showed up in the office. My presence changed. I went from being narrow focused on the words I was saying to expansively focused on the energy that I shared with others and the way that I was connecting with people. I went from being aggressive to being open to receiving to what the universe could send for me and to me. Instead of being super controlling, I learned to be really flexible. Like I thought controlling was the most important thing, So cultivating flexibility was a huge change and something that I was able to do when I removed my ego because that was my authentic self. I was a flexible person. And I was able to go from needing acquisitions or achievement for meaning, needing a title, wearing burnout, like some kind of identity to defining myself by the light that I shared. So instead of, you know, someone that was over practical, I didn't have to actually wait for the next sale or the next purchase to find joy. I could lean into joy immediately and I could start to enjoy the process instead of the outcome. I could be creative. I could be innovative because it didn't matter what happened in the end. The only thing that mattered now is that I was leaning into joy as much as possible. And that happened when I was being creative, when I was enjoying the process of showing up. Then it went even further. I went from someone that had to seek validation from others to being self-validating. So this was like a really huge one. I used to contort myself in any which way to win the approval of others so that, you know, I would feel as though I was worthy. And the thing is, when you value what other people say about you and, and how they judge you over the way that you think about yourself, that means what they say about you is more important than what you say about you. And that was a big one for me because I used to do that all the time. That took up a lot of my thought patterns. And when you do that, you give your power away. You give your power away bit by bit to other people until 
you have no power and you have to have more and more armor on. And then the cycle continues where you need to contort yourself more to validate. And that's where I was living for a lot of years. So what happened was my friendships were so much easier. They, they, they were no longer proof that I was worthy of love or normal because I had a whole bunch of friends. No, instead, they were an avenue for me to give and receive love. But I never saw it like that ever. And then the next thing happened where I no longer had to numb out my childhood anymore. I instead could appreciate my childhood. I had never done that. I was the well child. I was the lucky one. And because of that, I had something that no one else had in this world. Very few people had the perspective that I have. So I was able to let go of the anger that I had towards my parents because I realized they did their very best. And I could stop blaming them for the past. And then when you stop blaming others for the past, you could stop blaming everyone around you for the present, which is all that I had ever done for a number of years as well. Anything that was wrong with my current life, I really blamed others. So instead of that, I can actually be accountable. I could take ownership for my life and ownership for my destiny. And then you start to realize Okay, I know I'm doing my best. I saw my parents were doing their best. And you can live your life one of two ways. You could think that everyone out there in the world is terrible and they're doing their worst. Or you can think, because it's up to you what you want to think, everyone is doing their best. Even the evil people at work are doing their best because you don't know where they came from and you don't know their background. And I can tell you right now, you are seeing their armor. You are dealing with their armor right now. And when you start to believe that really, these people are actually sadly enough doing their best, you got compassion. You can walk into that office with compassion, which is a totally different way of living. And for me, I could let go of resentment and I could have compassion for my brother who was mentally ill. And instead of resenting him, I could say, wow, he was dealt a really tough hand instead. That was like medicine for my soul. So these things that I'm telling you are not about making life easier for another person. This is about creating the kind of energy that is self-healing for yourself so that you can be empowered to become authentic, to take off your armor. I went from being paralyzed where I had to rely on my husband to pull me out of bed to being someone who was an empowered woman who could achieve, who could add to our relationship instead of take away from our relationship. Instead of being someone that saw everything that was missing, I became someone who was noticing everything that was ising, everything that is, everything that we could even embellish and make better. That is true empowerment. I went from being a know-it-all to someone that could be curious, someone that could ask a question in the meeting, right? And then from being materialistic, and this is my favorite, to spiritualistic, because I now knew that it wasn't the things that were making me whole. It was me that was making me whole. And I raised my children that way. What I let them be was the embodiment of everything that was right with themselves. They were no longer proof that there wasn't anything wrong with me. They were instead the embodiment of all that was right with themselves. So because of that, I went from being insecure and fear-filled to being someone who finally had the courage to live my truth. 
to finally someone to be right in front of you here, serving to show others how they can actually live their very own truth. This is how I was able to actually create the kind of role that I have in front of you right now, just by being able to be full of faith and power. My interviewee, Benny, has just begun her journey of removing her own armor and relinquishing the need to control her outer world. When the signs of Benny's brother's mental illness worsened to a point of crisis, it was Benny who stepped in to get him the help and the diagnosis that finally set him on a course of recovery. Here's Benny's story. So I grew up kind of in a household and a community where talking about family problems with other people was kind of taboo. So I think that made me feel a lot of shame and just like not having like a context to understand my own experiences. So yeah, I just think this is really important for people to listen to. Yeah. And I think that's a big, big piece of it because now, you know, families have a really hard time talking about it, specifically with siblings. And I think obviously it's a taboo subject, but a big piece of it is I think the parents just need to believe that their well child is fine and that, you know, talking about it, I think they think that it actually might, you know, make it worse if they talk about it because they almost just can't face it that maybe there might be something that their well child is going through. I definitely agree with that. I think my parents didn't have much information about any of this or mental health before. And so I think they kind of just out of care for both me and my brother, they kind of just swept things under the rug and then just tried to carry on about, it was just more about survival, much more than like helping your child, like fully self-actualize and like understand the world and understand themselves. They were just like, you know, how do we get them to school? Like, how do we have them have good grades, you know, get them to college? And like, that's all my parents really had the capacity to really think about. Right. Yeah. It was almost like, like taking a box, just, you know, yeah. these are the things that we need to do today to make sure that we're all showing up. And, you know, it is this survival mode and, you know, taking a moment and thinking about, well, how does it feel? You know, it isn't even a part of the program just because it almost might be too painful to bring it up. So isn't it better to just, you know, kind of like push it down? Yeah, exactly. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, your family. Yeah, so I grew up with an older brother who's only two years older than me. So we grew up quite close to one another. He was recently diagnosed with bipolar. And so it's just kind of been a tough experience for me, but it's also given me a lot of of like insight into our childhood and why I grew up feeling the way that I did and kind of like why I feel the way I do about some things now. So my brother has kind of been on his own journey learning about bipolar and you know how that affected his own childhood as well as his adulthood too. And at the same time I kind of feel like I'm on a similar parallel road to him where my journey kind of matches his journey almost and our moods are kind of tied together Mm -hmm. but i'm slowly learning about how to untie those things so i can you know i can be there for my brother but also be there for myself it's interesting it's a work in progress but it's not something i would have started on if my brother didn't go through like this crisis recently to begin with that's what made me open up more to other people about mental health and like seek out more of a community and it's like started to normalize like 
talking about mental health and like talking about struggling and things like that. And like also seeking out professional help as well. I think in the past I thought, oh, my brother is the sick one. Like he has depression, he has anxiety. Like he's the one who needs to go be, you know, on antidepressants or like seeking medication or professional help at the least. But then I realized like everyone can use the help of a professional and in the same way that, you know, people seek out nutritionists or like physical trainers, people also need to, you know, work on maintaining their own personal mental health. I think that's where I am right now. It's just like learning more about that and applying it to myself. I love that message because it's so true that, you know, as the well sibling, we kind of just put it, you know, upon ourselves that, well, we're the one that's well, so we're well. And and I've done that too, you know, oh, I would never need to go on medication or I would never need therapy because I'm the well child. And, you know, my brother is the one that needs the help when in actuality, you know, we're, we're all worthy of going deeper and, and giving ourselves the kind of wellness, you know, that all of us need to thrive. So I love that you notice that, you know, being able to be on on this journey with your brother and you had mentioned that it, it kind of all in a sense came to a head in this crisis point that, that had happened recently. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What had happened, the experiences that led up to that and what the symptoms that your brother had and what really what they were like? I was thinking about this recently and I realized it's really hard to have like identified those early symptoms. He wasn't diagnosed until about three years ago. But even in that process, there was like a lot of denial on like his part, my part and like our families. I think just growing up, my brother has always been like a really, really eccentric personality. He's like a really unique worldview and like a really strange sense of humor. And he's just like, not everyone's cup of tea, but obviously like I love him. But I think growing up, like it was normal because, you know, he was my brother. And so we were only two years apart. Right. And so like, I could sense that my brother was different, but I never sensed that like, there was potential for trouble in his life or that life would be really difficult for him as he was older. He was like very smart from a young age. And I think that made him stand out a lot. Right. He was like way, way smarter than his peers. Like for example, when he was in elementary school, they had to do like school reports and all the other kids reports were like, I want to be the president one day, or I want to be like a firefighter. And then my brother's was that he wanted to be a physicist. That's awesome. <laughs> I think I, like in elementary school, I definitely didn't know what like physics was. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely like a kid genius. And I feel, yeah. I, I mentioned that because I feel like that shaped my relationship and my impression with him, which is that like my brother was different, but that was normal. Right. Um, and right. you know, it is okay to be different, but I think because I always thought like, oh, my brother's just quirky. I never noticed like signals that something could be potentially like a struggle, like he was struggling internally. He put a lot of pressure on himself in school to perform well in school. And so there were signs of anxiety when he was a child. Like if he did poorly in school, and I say poorly as in being like a B or something, right? he would cry and there would be nights where he would like stay up and be really, really anxious about going to school the next day. But wow. this would be like middle school, high school, like nothing was that serious, but he made it really, really serious and like scary for himself. And then when he got into college, I noticed more so that depression became like a common occurrence. Like he would kind of 
have mood swings. But depression kind of became his baseline, depression and anxiety. And there was times in university where like he had to drop his classes for the semester and take time off because it was just the anxiety was becoming too much. So it was around that time that he started getting on antidepressants, but it was like on and off because I don't think he ever imagined or wanted to be on them long term. And I know that's like not the recommended way that you should be taking antidepressants. It would just be like if he had a really tough exam coming up and he started feeling anxiety, he had a prescription. So he would just like self-medicate. But then when a tough period like had passed, then he would just go off of the medication. So was the belief there, well, I really only need it for the tough times because all the other times I'll get by because I'm not really, you know, I'm not really ill. Yeah, I think so. I don't think we had like a name for what he was feeling. I think it was just to him, it felt like he was completely fine, but it was just his mood was really attached to like the school semester. Right. So almost like a seasonal thing, because I know he was basically taking antidepressants to help him cope to get through school, but he wasn't interested in seeing like a therapist to kind of like dig deeper into things with himself, because I don't think he saw anything like you only know yourself, right? Like you're the baseline. And so I don't think like anything could possibly be wrong. Yeah. And then like from the outside, it it almost just feels like, well, you know, he's doing it for, you know, performance based reason, Mm -hmm. only skimming the surface and, and not, you know, focusing on the wellness based, you know, portion of it. Yeah, so exactly. So that made, I think me and my parents just felt like it was self-inflicted. Like, oh, you're just being too serious about school. Like you need to lighten up and then everything will be better, you know? And so we kind of accepted, you know, it's hard for him to let that go. So if he needs to just take the antidepressants on and off, like, and needs that Band-Aid fix at the time, then, you know, he's doing what he needs to do for himself. That's okay. And I guess we had hoped like once he gets through undergrad, then things will be better. And right. Yeah. You always think, well, it will get better. It, it will get better eventually. Right. Yeah. yeah. But then in grad school, that's when I noticed a really big shift in him. He was taking really, really difficult classes and they had like a very extreme exam schedule where they had to do like four qualifying exams within like three months or something. So he was extremely stressed out. And so he went to his psychiatrist and they switched his medication to some different antidepressant to see if that would work better for him. And then I saw like this massive shift in him. I was used to him being like pretty depressed for a long time up until this point. But after he switched his medication, suddenly he had like a lot of energy and he started saying school is like too easy for me right now. And then he was like also tutoring people and making lots of friends. So my parents and I were like ecstatic. We were just like, you know, maybe he just had hormonal imbalances or, you know, like right. it was just the wrong before. And this is the thing, you and know. Like, yeah, yeah. And and then you're like, like wow, this is amazing. We've been wanting this is, you know, his whole yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. And then it felt like his sense of humor returned. And then it just suddenly felt like, you know, this was kind of the person my brother was like meant to be like, this right. is the fully formed version of his childhood self and like he has confidence and it was just like a really good time for us um, I'm getting chills when you're saying that because I, I know what it's leading up yeah, to yeah I know yeah I do and I love that you're sharing this and there's so much there there's so many feelings there because you're like oh that's his true authentic self that's my brother from when we played together as children you know and, and that's what we want and, and that's so beautiful yeah. and okay I'm sorry go on no no <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> I feel like anyone listening to this definitely knows where this is going. But yeah. that time was so happy 
that I feel like I was missing a lot of other red flags of like mm-hmm. some more negative behavior. I was just really happy to see like this dark cloud lifted off of him that had just kind of been hanging there for like so many years right. during um, undergrad. But then I, I realized like I was brushing off and be, you know, part of this is because my brother is like pretty eccentric. So like he would say some things that like sounded really strange, but I was just like, you know, he has like a very creative, like, like overactive mind. And like, that's okay for him to like explore these thoughts or something. But he would start saying he had like an upper hand over his fellow classmates because of like, he was able to like prophesy some things. Mm. It's kind of vague to me because I brushed a lot of it off. So I don't remember a lot of it, but you know, just like would ramble more. I think during the time, you know, like everyone's gotten more into politics over the past few years. Like my brother was also getting more into politics and I noticed he would be like arguing with people online (laughs) about politics and then even like he pushed some friends away because of political disagreements and that was just very unlike him polarizing yeah it's like you know this is the first time that me or my brother has really cared about things politically so I was just like you know he's like finding his path and like finding the ways that he wants to have these communications so I just didn't really read too much into it things in that semester were going really really well but then I noticed my brother started wanting to like travel more and he was planning like solo trips that he had never done. And I didn't find that unusual because I thought like, you know, of course we didn't travel in undergrad. We had no money. <laughs> right. And, like now he's done with undergrad at least. And he has like a student stipend from school. And so like, yeah, he can afford to travel. So why not? And I didn't find that unusual. Basically, while he was on one of his solo trips traveling abroad, he got into some legal trouble. And I hadn't heard from my brother for a few days while he was traveling. And so I started getting kind of nervous because he was all by himself. So I was looking online to find out, you know, where he had checked in on Facebook. And I started reaching out to some of those people. And then I heard that he was getting into trouble abroad. And apparently he had lost his phone and his passport. Wow. And gotten into legal trouble. Oh my um, goodness. And, and there, there he is in another country and, and yeah. you guys feel paralyzed. It was really scary, but he was arrested. He had some sort of mental breakdown and thought that someone was being attacked. So mm-hmm. he thought he was like rescuing someone. Like he pulled someone away from another person and the police interpreted, I think the people that this happened to interpreted it as my brother assaulting someone. So they called the police and then the police they arrested him, but the police could quickly tell like something was not right, right with him and that he was not violent, but he was clearly like, going through something. So they sent him to a mental ward. And this is all abroad. Like we're in America and my brother is like across the world from us. And so my dad had to go abroad and like convince the hospital that my brother was nonviolent and that they could release him and then bring my brother back. This is the part that I beat myself up on. Yeah, I was going to ask you what, what you're thinking this time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I beat myself up about is after all of this happened, like no one in my family nor I believed that he was bipolar because we didn't know anything about it at the time. My family and I actually kind of blamed his doctor because we thought, oh, the doctor put him on this medication that wasn't right for him. You know, it sent him off on this crazy bender. (laughs) And so even after like, you know, that's like the biggest red flag and sign you could get is a crazy manic episode like that, right? Right, right. 
you know, in hindsight, now you see it because now you know and you're educated about it. But and this is where, you know, being a sibling, you know, gets so difficult because even though you didn't know and how could you have known, you're still beating yourself up for it because you're like, damn it, I wish I would have known. How could I have not known? But you didn't because you, you just in no way could ever have known. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But even then, it's still hard to accept because when you start reading about it, it's just like textbook signs, right? (laughs) Right, right. And prior to having a diagnosis, why would you have ever read about it? Right. You know, and so that's where, you know, it becomes fascinating to watch your own journey in parallel, which which we'll certainly get to. But so there you are having this moment where you're thinking that it's the medication and you're feeling like, well, let's place blame on the doctor. And then what changed? What what shifted? I feel like we were seeking like confirmation bias that, you know, it wasn't another disease or anything like it's just a freak incident Right. because when my brother came back, he like quickly started to stabilize. And at this point he was not on that antidepressant that the doctor prescribed anymore. And so we thought like, yeah, you know what? It was just like, you know, his system was full of this drug that didn't work for him and it just kind of made him have a breakdown. And so that's kind of just like the narrative that we continued on for like two years that followed. And when he got back, he stabilized, but then he went through a kind of long depressive phase. And we just thought like, you know, that given what happened to him, that's expected. And he was also back in school. So there's the pressure from school. And so, you know, we didn't really see that as like, highs and lows, you know, we just thought of it as like a natural response to something traumatic happening while you're abroad, you know? Right. The depressive phase eventually passed and things were okay for a while. Like they're not bad. He's on medication during this time? I'm not sure. I don't think that he was. That's what I was wondering. Like if you went back to the doctor, explain what had happened and what did the doctor say? It was bad. Like, I guess my parents really blamed the doctor because at the time, my parents actually fought a lot because they don't really like taking medication. So it was like a big debate if they even wanted to allow my brother to take antidepressants when he was initially depressed. Right. So their thought was like, okay, it's the medication. Let's get him the hell off of it. And let's get him back into his regular schedule at school. And it kind of followed suit where it made sense that, you know, depression could happen then because of look at all that happened. Yeah, exactly. It was like red herrings kind of, and it kind of just matched into the narrative of what we wanted to believe. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm not too sure, but I don't think my brother was on medication after all of that happened and he came back to the U.S., but he was generally still pretty stable. So that was his original diagnosis. The doctor had spoken to him before he went abroad. You know, he was meeting with his doctor semi-regularly then, and then the initial diagnosis was depression and anxiety. But then when all of this stuff happened, my parents were calling the doctor, and that's when the doctor told them, like, oh, based on these recent events, like, I would believe that your son has bipolar one. But yeah, that's just the first time we had ever heard that terminology before, I guess, Throughout my brother's life, he mostly leaned to the depressive side. He had never had like incidents like this before. And so it just seemed like very unlikely at the time. Right. He had the low without really that manic high. Yeah, exactly. Like he would get hyper, but I mean, like, that's just like he was a kid, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I would call those highs or not. We just were in denial about that diagnosis. 
so when he came back and went through that depressive phase, it just seemed we had seen him be depressed for so long before that, like, obviously we weren't happy that he was depressed, but it seemed normal to us. It was something that we were familiar with. Right. We felt like we knew how to handle and like support. And so we're like, okay, he's safe now and he's fine. And right. like, this is my brother that I know. It's like when it's kind of bad, he'll like come home to our family and want to see us. But as it gets worse, I notice my brother pulls away from me point that he will, if we're not like in the same city at the same time and I'm texting him, he'll just completely ignore me. Like he won't pick up my calls or answer my texts. And then I talked to my parents about it and I know it's because he's the older brother and he wants to keep up the appearance. He's prideful, very prideful. He just doesn't like to look weak and vulnerable, especially because we're siblings and we're so close in age that we often get compared. And I don't think he likes the feeling of like, I'm the healthy one and he's not healthy. And, you know, I think he wants me to see him as my big brother, like someone I can look up to. So I think it's hard for him to show weakness and he'll push me away in those times. In the past, I guess my approach would be like, you know, if he doesn't want to talk to me, then like keep pushing, like, are you okay? Like, hey, like, you know, just like keep reaching out kind of in a more aggressive style. Yeah, yeah. But now I know to like disclaim with like, hey, like you don't have to text me back if you don't want to, but I just want to like send you some love. So not even like a question, just be like, oh, hey, I care about you. Um, that's so good. That I learned that from you. <laughs> like in the past, I had my specific way that I always talked to my brother. I didn't know there was another path you could take. You know what I mean? Like you just fall into your own patterns and you think that's what's worked for you and you don't see another alternative option. So you were telling me like, just text him without any expectations. Like don't even say something that requires a reply. Just be like, hey, I love you, you know? So I did that a few days in a row and he still didn't text me back. And then I started sending him cat pictures. <laughs> Oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> One reply though. But then a week later, he just texted me back. Hey, thanks for the cat picture. <laughs> and that's all he said. But the fact that he thought to reach out to me and just like say thank you for that, you know, just showed me that like he still wants to like make contact. Like he still cares how I feel enough to like say thank you. And like just him responding about the cat, like that's like all that, you know, you need to be able to feel like, mm. wow, you know, we've got communication going and, and, you know, I do the same thing, you know, for a really long time, you know, where, you know, if I hadn't heard back, you know, and that's how I know what it is that I could try on that helps facilitate him to eventually, you know, get back to me. But the question is, you know, well, how do we live? in that time when he's not getting back and what it is that we're doing is we're judging ourselves and we're saying well if i had only done this or I'd only done that and i'm not doing my job is fixing i think what's new and different for you now is that you don't need to live with that belief anymore there's a freedom there these ups and downs will happen all the time you know and the question is how are we because we're the ones that we're living with, you know, taking it in, are we internalizing it and using it to judge ourselves, you know, mm. for having not been the one that was able to quote unquote, get him to speak to us, you know, mm. versus just being there as a container, knowing that we aren't the fixers. Right. Yeah. I think that just goes back to the whole letting yourself feel joy and happiness. Like right. there's someone who's really anxious and overbearing and like, 
you know, takes anything they say and like turns it into like a crisis or an emergency, like you're not going to be the one that they want to talk to about anything, you know, you're probably going to make them feel like worse or more scared at the end of the day. I think like just sending my brother silly cat pictures or just being like, hey, I love you. And like being bubbly and happy. I think I thought in the past he wouldn't want that because like he was in the deepest, darkest depths of like whatever he was feeling. But I think he can sense the lightheartedness that I'm trying to bring to the conversations now. And that makes him want to talk to me more, to just talk about lighthearted things and not just always be talking about him. Like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Yeah. So this is a week where I think we're both experiencing the same thing where, you know, both of our brothers are in a place where they're not, you know, really wanting, you know, to engage with us. Mm. You know, so it's really funny because I'm thinking, you know, how do I come and do a podcast when, you know, I haven't had a successful conversation with my brother this week, you know, like, you know, like we easily can put that back on and, and go back to the template, you know, and then there's the knowing that, you know, I'm already perfectly imperfect the way that I'm showing up to this conversation, as are you, you know, and then making sure that I can lean into joy, you know, regardless of whether or not he's getting back to me. And, you know, for me to say, well, how can I judge myself and not want to help others because, you know, I haven't been able to have a conversation with my brother we start to see how irrational these thought patterns are. And as I get onto the podcast with you, he's calling me and saying, I'm really sorry. Can we get together? (laughs) That's so crazy. What a crazy coincidence. That's why I had to bring it up. I love that. Yeah. You know, I've noticed that I guess when you grow up in such a close age to your sibling and that they're struggling, especially with bipolar, it's like, it almost makes you feel like you're bipolar in a sense too. Because your mood is so closely tied to theirs. When they're angry, they will find a way to make you angry. (laughs) You know, and when they're depressed, like you will feel depressed for them too. And I used to think like that was empathy. But I think I realized like, they need a sense of stability too. And like, you can't have that if you keep just going with their flow of emotions. You need to have like personal strength and like fortitude and your own feelings like suck into their anger because you know if you respond to anger with anger like it will only escalate more you know and I think that my whole life until recently I'm trying to be more calm and yeah and that's where you see yourself feeling your self-worth standing in your power knowing that you love yourself unconditionally that you know none of the things that happen outside of you need to be taken in, you know, in a way that can harm you because only you decide how to take something in, you know, and you reflect that to your sibling, you know, the more your sibling understands that that's a choice and a way of being that your sibling could have too, you know, and it just becomes that much more healing for both of you to really weather those, you know, up and down moments because they will always be there, you know, they will always be there. But I think about, you know, kind of like being almost like a palm tree, you know, which is really, really flexible, you know, versus we think strength is rigidity, but in actuality, when you're really, really rigid, that's when you can bend over and you can be broken quickly versus a palm tree, which can withstand, you know, hurricane weather winds and really never, falls over and cracks. It, it just really sways and always comes back because it's fluid. And it's that fluidity that we can bring to the conversation, not only just with our siblings, but the one that we have internally with ourselves. 
that's a great metaphor. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. I did not make it up. Dr. Wayne Dyer did many years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. But I think about that very often. And then, you know, after a while, I think it was about two years, he was pretty stable, some depression and anxiety, but pretty closely tied to like the school semester. But then last year, we, we live in different cities, so it's hard to really keep an eye on him. But I noticed like in his social media posts that he was purchasing a lot of things and like showing them off on his social media accounts. And that's not my brother at all. Like he's okay. not materialistic normally. He's worn like the same brand and like same style of polo shirts his entire life. Like he just gets more colors of them, but like, he's just not interested in clothes and things like that. He's like, you know, a mathematician and really out of character. I started messaging my parents about it and telling them like, this is starting to look like what the doctor was saying about like the bipolar diagnosis. It's strange, I guess. But my parents had been spending time with him and they were like, oh, you know, we have a handle on things. Like we're keeping an eye on him, but like, he seems like really good right now. He's like, he's slowly becoming happier and he's like singing even. <laughs> wow. Um, they were just like really excited to see him come out of the depressive phase again. But for me, I started getting really scared because, you know, in the time, even though I was in denial about his diagnosis, I had still been reading up about it a lot. And I was just like, this is like kind of eerie how it's starting to match up to how he was acting when he right. was abroad. Right. Leading up to that. Yeah. It's like, it's like um, a, almost like a ramping up of that high. Yeah. And so I actually tried to talk to him about it. And I was like, I know that you don't want to hear this and this could be hard for you to hear, but just like based on the things that you're telling me, I'm getting kind of nervous because I feel like you do sound like a little bit manic. And instantly he was just like really, really angry with me and was like, you're psychiatrizing me. Like, you don't know anything about me. You're so arrogant. Oh, you think you're like the healthy one and you right. can just like pass this judgment on me. Wow. Um, and, and you're just trying to help because you're like, I think I'm seeing something that no one else is seeing or maybe they're seeing and just can't bear to see it, but I've got to say something. Exactly. Yeah. And maybe yeah. I didn't say it in the best way. No, but I mean, there, you never have like a moment where someone taught you how to say it. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? You're just like, I just got to say it, you know? And I, I love that you did that. He's so lucky to have you, you know? Yeah. I hope so. I hope he feels that way. <laughs> I know. I know you hate like the way you said it. I know. We'll, we'll talk about that too. But <laughs> <laughs> like that stuff was happening, but my parents were like, no, he's fine. We have an eye on him. And then I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to believe that I was wrong too. He just started talking to me about like investing and money and like, I'm going to get dad, like buy him. It was interesting because my brother and my dad have like had a pretty bad relationship since like my brother's teens. I don't know why. It's just like at some point my brother pulled away and like started to hate my dad, like a really deep seated hatred for my dad, even though my dad's done nothing wrong to him. But yeah, while he was like buying new things, he was like, yeah, I'm going to get dad like a $500 wallet. And I didn't know how to feel because I was like, oh, like that's great that you like care about dad enough to like get him anything right. but also like this is so out of character because like my dad is not really into like material things either so I was like this doesn't seem like an appropriate gift and like where are you getting the money and like why right, right. and it's so out of character I mean you love it because you're like wow you know he's finally realizing that you know my dad's someone to love and respect and get along with and wow he wants to buy him a wallet but it's like a deep down undercurrent of like knowing that something's off but you almost just want to lean into it not being off 
Exactly. I was like, I just want this to be like, yeah, if you could always be like this, then th- that would be great. But right. then it was like, this like uncanny feeling of like, I don't think this is like right or like something is just off. And that went on. Like, I just kept kind of talking to my parents about it, but they were like, don't worry. Like he was close to my parents. So they were like, don't worry. We have an eye on him. He seems fine. He's in a good mood. He's like productive. It'll be okay. And it wasn't until like two months later that I saw on his Instagram again, that he was like going to take a spontaneous trip. Mm. And that just was like a major red flag. Cause I was just thinking about, you know, before when he went abroad. Yeah. yeah. And so I was talking to him about it and he was saying like, you know, like, Oh, I don't have a place yet. Like I might just sleep in my car. And like, I was just like, that sounds really dangerous. Like you should probably plan ahead if you're, if you're wanting to take a trip, any conversation where I sounded like overly protective or anything, he would just push back and get really angry and just be like, you know, this is my life. Like, just let me do what I want to do. I'm the older sibling. Like, why right. are you right. trying to be my mom? For you to tell me that I shouldn't sleep in a car on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, that doesn't sound fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <sighs> and then he ended up coming down to the city where I was living. And once I saw him, I knew this is a manic episode. And I was like, so angry with my parents at the time that like they you know, we're saying they were seeing him regularly and that they couldn't tell because he was like dressing differently. He was wearing like, like a hat, like a, a Panama hat, which is like not his normal sense of style. He's like so low key. Wow. He was like cigarettes. He was just, like, when he was speaking, he was rambling and it was just like, it was almost like he was drunk. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It was just, his entire vibe was completely different and like just frantic and like, I instantly knew that this was a manic episode and like, I just needed to make sure that he was like safe. And so I like did everything in my power to just try to get him to like, stay with me, stay at my place, not go out. And it was just so weird. Cause just like classically bipolar, like he would right. like, really angry with me one minute. And then I would get worked up too and start feeling angry at him. Cause he was being so abrasive and aggressive with me. And then like a second later, I'd just be like, he would be like, I'm so glad we had this conversation and just switched to being like really amicable and like nice to me. And like, I couldn't switch back around that quickly. So I was like, this is super confusing. How are you feeling during this? I mean, you must've been terrified. In hindsight, I guess I tell myself that it was terrifying, but I think at the time it happened, I think I was just like in survival mode of like, mm-hmm. I was just trying to strategize and like solve the problem. So right, right. You know, like, the entirety of what happened was really scary, but I don't think I was feeling fear at the time, more just like confusion and like, what can I do? Right. And stepping in as the quote unquote fixer. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And so like, I was really scared about, because he's still in school and graduate school. So I was really worried about like, who is he talking to online? Like, is he, you know, damaging his relationship with his professors? Because he's like a very close relationship with this university. So I was like, I tried to take his computer and his phone away from him. And I guess he thought I was trying to like imprison him or something. Mm -hmm. It just didn't go well. And there was a lot of tension. And like, I ended up fighting with him a lot. You know, he started showing more and more signs of being in like a psychotic episode. So we got to a point where we needed police intervention and then sending him like involuntarily to the hospital. And, you know, it was at this point that my parents were finally like, okay, you were right (laughs) two months ago. Like, we're sorry that we didn't like see the signs. Like we were just happy to see him happy. And I think, so that's like the most recent episode that he's had. And that's kind of like the tipping point that got my whole family 
thinking about bipolar, thinking about mental health and like trying to be more of a team and supporting my brother. And he went to you and you were the one that got to that point with him to really get him the help that he needed, which I think is probably, you know, one of the most traumatic experiences a person can have to live through that as a sibling with someone that you love so much. And I know that it's a really difficult experience to kind of roll around your head. I wonder if you at all had the perspective that he came to you for a reason. You know, I hadn't thought about that because he didn't say that to me. But it is definitely a possibility because when he did come to me and we were talking and he was still manic and like rambling, he, I mentioned like, do you see like manic symptoms in yourself right now? And then we got onto the topic of when he went abroad and then my dad had to go essentially rescue him. And he said, you know, I wish it wasn't dad that came. I wish it was you. Hmm. Yeah, like it is possible that he sensed something was wrong or like something within him called to him that like he should come see me because we're so close in age. And like, even though we have like a unique relationship, we still look out for each other. It's like heartwarming that my brother, he feels safe with me, but it also like terrifies me because, you know, him coming to like my city was so sudden and And I did not feel like equipped to like handle the situation. I feel better equipped now, but it's it's like the idea of like me having to be his rescuer and like not having the whereabouts and the resources, like it's scary (laughs) sometimes. And yet with it all, you did it because you were the one, you were the one that noticed it. You were the one that handled it and you were the one that got him where he needed to go, you know? And and I find it fascinating because in the beginning of the conversation, you had mentioned that, you know, you didn't like the way that you had brought it up in the beginning, you know, because it turned him off, made him feel like, you know, you're trying to tell him what to do. And, you know, it's amazing because I wonder if you would think differently about that now, just knowing that he turned to you. I think like it takes conscious effort, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think my natural state is like as a problem solver to like, ruminate on what happened and where I did things wrong. It's hard to like give myself any credit for like the things that did go right. And the fact that he is like stable now, I just naturally think of that was a crisis and like, how could it have been averted altogether? But I don't even know that it could have been. I think what happened actually needed to happen to get me to open my eyes, to get my family to open my eyes and like to get my brother to like stop being in denial too. Right. But It's just something I have to remind myself of. It's like, you know, things kind of happened the way as they needed to happen versus like, that was a terrible shit show. I wish that didn't happen. (laughs) And how could I have stopped that from happening? And you know that from like a thought perspective and, and, you know, we've been talking for a few months. I've known you for what seems like forever now. And I know that we're at this point where I feel like you're so good at noticing that, you know, you can notice your thoughts and, you know, you can see when rumination is happening and how it doesn't serve you. But I almost think from like an energetic perspective, it still lives in your body. Mm, yeah, I think so too. I think that probably just comes from like childhood. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of like a hard wiring, you know, that the body picks up on and says, oh, so this is the way we are. Yeah, I think I'm so used to like my brother would get into trouble as a child a lot within our community. And so my parents were always telling me, like, keep an eye on him. Like, you know, like stay close to your brother, make sure he's not getting into fights with anyone, with any parents or any kids. And so 
I just kind of grew up feeling like part of my identity was to watch over my brother as if I was his older sister. Mm -hmm. I guess growing up like that, an easy tendency for me to like blame myself when my brother does like get into any trouble. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the template that you create and it dictates who you become as an adult. And I think that that's like a very, very common experience of siblings. I I certainly had it as well. And, you know, I I can see the the places in in my childhood where I put that on because we we do end up putting that on as almost like an an armor in a way because, you know, somehow we've got to be in control. So, you know, control is something that we wear and and we think that, you know, it 100% protects us if we show up, you know, as as this strong one because we are the fixer after all and, and, you know, don't want to add to any other additional burden and and in doing so it does cause us to kind of put away parts of ourselves and when we put away parts of ourselves you know that's where when we want to kind of like move past what we're feeling energetically we kind of get stuck because we almost don't even know who that self is because it's been put away for such a long time There's a story I think that we've talked about for you, one of the first times that you almost knew that the armor went on. I don't know that we use that word, but you know, kind of like the time that you felt like, well, this is like my thing that I'm taking on. And I think it was around the story of you guys going to church. I don't know if you're comfortable telling that story, but I think that's a good example. Yeah. So the church that we grew up going to was like pretty conservative and there was just kind of like a general feeling in the community that like it was like not okay to be different obviously like my brother was very different and so that caused a lot of like tension within the community I would literally see other parents talking about my mom and wow that must be so hard yeah it was uh, like it felt very shameful because I could see the way that people were taking my brother's behavior and extrapolating that like my mom was a bad mom which I obviously knew was not the case so it's like very hard for me to watch that judgment yeah it was so so hard yeah and it's just like in church of all places made it extra hard because I just you know I just felt like this is supposed to be a loving community and like I don't feel like safe here and I feel like my family's being judged here but at the time as a kid I was like thought it was my brother's fault you know I was like why can't you just like behave (laughs) and gossip about our family and then I just remember my dad being like you know him not even really having the words to address any of this but him just being like you know your brother is really special he gets into a lot of fights with the kids at church and like he's just like you know something's not normal about him even though you're younger like you need to be there for him and guide him and like if you can help him be normal I'll give you a thousand dollars and boom boom, armor on like like it's just right then and there yeah and as a kid it was like I knew my brother wasn't normal but it's like I still loved him so it nothing felt that serious but I just remember being like wow a thousand dollars is like a lot of money like okay like what can I do to help my brother (laughs) it's kind of silly but I I just think about that all the time because you know that's like how little my dad knew about how to help the situation (laughs) just like let me bribe this kid (laughs) with a thousand dollars And then kind of from there on, it was yours to own in a way. Yeah, I was like, this is my this is my first job. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, even before being bribed, I still naturally would still watch over my brother and kind of make sure I was keeping him out of trouble. I don't know like how effectively I was doing that. I felt like my brother's keeper. And I think that has always just been a part of me and like our dynamic. And I know it's not actually good for any of us because I think my brother can sense that. 
And that's why, you know, when I try to tell him like, Hey, you're showing manic symptoms, he automatically goes to like, you know, you don't tell me what to do. Right. Uh, why are you patronizing? And I think that's like a dynamic I'm trying to change for myself and for him. So tell me more about how that dynamic has shifted since his diagnosis. You know, I, you helped me a lot with this. <laughs> Thank you um, for saying that. I'm like, <laughs> I knew you were going to say it at some point. I really appreciate that. But really, you were the one that did all the work. You know, all I gave you was some guiding questions. So, you know, where you've taken it, it's such an incredible story of inspiration because going from what you've just described in your childhood to being empowered to where you are now and noticing the journey and, and watching it unfold and being able to have the relationship that you do is all on you. So <laughs> I think I needed the guidance. I agree that like I was the one that put things into action, but I think like I just had my baseline, which is just treating my brother like he needed a, a watcher, like a guardian or something hearing more and more stories about just not having that attitude towards your sibling, not feeling like you're like their parent or like, you know, their ward or something, you know, going back to just treating them like your sibling, like your friend and just like reaching out to them. I guess my tendency would be like, since we live in different cities, I would kind of contact my brother trying to get information out of him to see like where he was in his cycle instead of reaching out to him just to like, you know, like send him love or like, check in on how he's doing without any expectations, like genuine curiosity about what he'd been up to. It was more like seeking red flags that like he was manic again, or if he was in his depressive cycle. And I think he could tell that I was trying to like extract information about him. Like I was like a double agent, like, you know, trying to find out information to tell my parents so that, you know, we could be overbearing, (laughs) you know, that hurt him. And it hurt me because I think I just got into this state where I just assumed even if things were going well, that they would turn for the negative. And I think changing my expectations that things would always turn out badly and that I needed to be there to like rescue him mm-hmm. and like me not having the trust that, you know, he is like taking initiative in his mental health journey. Me not having that trust before was, you know, causing me anxiety and then causing my brother to feel like I was patronizing. And so just like learning to trust and have less expectations has been great. For me, like I could sleep better at night. For my brother, I feel like it's tough. Like we're still rebuilding the trust from him having to be involuntarily hospitalized, but like we're like able to talk to each other again. And like, instead of me prodding, I'll just contact him. Like just like casual things. Like I try to talk to him more as a friend now. Versus when I was trying to talk to him as like my troubled brother who I would be paid off to take care of or something. Exactly. Because then, (laughs) you know, he has to almost live up to that identity. And, you know, when, when you're doing that, you know, that energetic shift where he could feel empowered enough to know that, you know, he's got this and it's, you know, well within his capability to be able to make the decisions, you know, for himself and that you support that and are there as a container. You know, I think it's just so incredible to watch what kind of shift that can create for your family. And I think part of it goes back to, you know, some of our earlier conversations when we had first started talking and and the conversations were just 100% around 
well, I want to just get past and through and, and understand how I could help my brother. How can I be there for my brother? Like, what do I do next? You know, he's in the hospital. What do we do? You know, what are the conversations? What does it look like? From there, I think a learning came out of that. And so I guess the question to you is, what kind of learning was that for you to shift? And then what does that mean now for your family? Mm, That's a good question. That's so true. I'm thinking back to our earlier conversations. And I remember at the beginning, I felt like I wasn't getting what I was speaking from you. Like, tell me the answer. Like, just tell me the solution to the problem. Totally. Totally. (laughs) I remember uh, thinking that you were thinking that. <laughs> I was like, why do we keep talking about me? Like, I just want to talk about my brother here. Right, right. Um, like, tactical. You know, I'm going to get $1,000 maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I just remember feeling at the time, like, there's just some, there's got to be some secret. And if I can just figure that out, everything will be okay. My life will be okay. My brother's life will be okay. And, you know, everything will just be 100%. But obviously that doesn't exist, you know, he's obviously going to be on his own journey too. I had to learn that I have very little control of that. And that's hard for me because I am, when it comes to my family, I guess, like very controlling. And I just want to just like eliminate any possibility of. It's almost like you're like dress rehearsing tragedy. <laughs> like what are all of the things that could happen and how do we prepare for them? Yes, that's exactly it. It's like game planning, right? Right. Imagining the worst scenarios that probably won't even happen and having a solution for all of them before they even happen. And I realized I was like living in that as if they were a reality. And I was treating my brother in a way as if they were a reality. Right. To the point where like, you know, when he was showing signs of happiness, I thought like, is this mania, you know? And like sometimes, you know, in the past that had come true, that did turn out to be a red flag, but it doesn't always have to be. You know, one thing that you told me was allowing myself to feel joy. Oh, I was waiting for you to say the J word. (laughs) (laughs) You said it. I was just, I I guess I didn't understand how it was relevant because I was like, how could I possibly feel joy when things are so bad? (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, I was like, why do I even want to feel joy right now? Like, how would you help anything? (laughs) How would me being happy help this situation? I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm sure I looked confused when you said that. Like, I was like, yeah, that sounds nice, but I don't see why or how that's possible. But I've definitely learned more about that in my time. I've learned about that, like, from observing my parents, too, because, you know, I'm sure they felt it as hard, if not harder than, like, I did because they're his parents. (laughs) Even with all the struggles with my brother throughout their lives, they've always been really serious about their health and, like, maintaining their hobbies. My dad plays piano every day. My mom like loves to sing and dance and garden. And it actually used to make me really angry as a kid because I would think like you guys like assigned me to be like my brother's watcher. And then here you are like singing and laughing when like my brother is in crisis. Like we should be empathizing with him. We should be feeling what he's feeling in order to support him. Like how can you sing and dance? But I've seen like how that actually strengthens them and is like, having their own lives and feeling happiness for the things that they love to do is like fortifying for them. And that's the only way that they're able to like show up for my brother in a sustainable way and be there for him is to like have a little trust that things will be okay and that they'll be there when they need to be there and that they don't always need to be there because 
my brother is an adult and my brother, you know, cares about himself and taking care of himself. And even though like he kind of started understanding and being on this journey a little bit like later in life, obviously he wants to do well and will take his diagnosis seriously now that he's like admitted to it. So like he's going to the doctor and everything. And so I'm learning from watching him take care of himself and take action for himself. And then also my parents still feeling joy and like realizing that even in crisis, like I need to still live my own life in order not to completely crumble. And like feeling joy is a big part of that. Finding small ways to feel happiness will make you stronger. I'm smiling so wide that you're saying it. (laughs) 